If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Silent Hill 2 was my finale for the series. I played the original four games in the order of Silent Hill 4, 1, 3, and 2. And it was an amazing way to experience the stories of Silent Hill. All these games deal with some very dark subject matter, but this video about Silent Hill 2 in particular is going to come with a content warning. I'm not going to shy away from talking about anything, so your discretion is advised. Welcome to Silent Hill. Silent Hill, a quiet little lakeside resort town. We're happy to have you. Take some time out of your busy schedules and enjoy a nice, restful vacation here. Row after row of quaint old houses, a gorgeous mountain landscape, and a lake which shows different sides of beauty with the passing of the day from sunrise to late afternoons to sunset. Silent Hill will move you and fill you with a feeling of deep peace. I hope your time here will be pleasant and your memories will last forever. That little brochure advertisement is what brought James and Mary Sunderland to Silent Hill a short time before it all fell apart. The two seemed happy, connected, they knew each other. James from the outside was a bit gruff and distant, well-mannered but rough around the edges, but Mary knew him to be kind and empathetic. During this little vacation for two, the duo lodged at Lakeview Hotel, overlooking the gorgeous Toluca Lake in room 312. Mary loved it there. It was peaceful, beautiful, a sacred place. Before their departure, she asked James to bring her here again one day to this, this special place. But Mary became ill, and this wasn't some overcooked Hollywood story of a sick wife who's nursed back to health by her dutiful, loving husband, bringing the two closer together into renewed matrimonial bliss. Mary was terminal. There was no treatment for her. And her suffering wouldn't be a short affair. Six months to three years she was given. Her skin inflamed, cracked, peeled, and changed into sickly shades. Her hair fell out. She hacked and coughed and struggled to carry on conversation. She lashed out at James. She pushed him away. But she didn't do it out of malice. She was frightened and so afraid of what was happening. A young woman was slowly rotting from illness, having to face that she has no future. This will be her end and the world will continue on without her. Who knows what sort of medication she was on just to cope with her slow physical breakdown. Mary was kept in hospital and eventually James didn't come around to visit so often. There was a rift between them. Mary was so angry and frightened and James just didn't know what to do or what to say. He took to drinking to cope. He missed her and she missed him. Mary began to vocalize suicidal desires. It'd be easier if they just killed me. In her final year, Mary met another patient, an orphaned girl named Laura, and the two enjoyed each other's company. And Mary would share bits of information about James with the girl, enough that the girl knew that James made Mary very sad. His absence made her sad, and the girl quite disliked James because of this, though the two never met. Mary dreamed of one day adopting Laura, but that was just a pipe dream. Death would be along soon for Mary. Mary was sent home eventually, but not because she was recovering, so that she could be home one last time, be with James. She was afraid he wouldn't come to see her anymore if she was kept at the hospital. Her violent mood swings continued. Her health steadily declined. She kept whispering desires for death. James was already in a fragile state of mind. It's 
Not as if he didn't love Mary. She was the love of his life. She was his wife. This was horribly painful for him as well, and resentment began to fester in his heart. For how Mary was treating him, for the loss of his wife before she was even dead, for how slow and insidious this disease was. He was grieving someone who was still living, who loved him so much, and who he loved deeply, but hurt him with vitriolic words, and the burden was just too much. James broke. As Mary rested, James went to her bedside, he kissed her forehead, and smothered her to death with a pillow. He carried his wife's body out to the car, placed her in the back seat, and began to drive. He began to dissociate from what was going on. He's, he's gone through a traumatizing event. His brain begins to smudge facts, to fill in blanks, make up stories as he drives. Mary, Mary died three years ago, but she sent him a letter. You see the letter, right? In my restless dreams, I see that town, Silent Hill. You promised you'd take me there again someday, but you never did. Well, I'm alone there now in our special place, waiting for you. It looks like a blank page to anyone else, but to James, this is a clue to something. His Mary didn't die three years ago. She sent him this letter, beckoning him on to Silent Hill, so of course he'll go. He misses her so much. Maybe their special place was that little park near the water. Now, just for a moment, let's talk about this world, the fog. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this shift from the first game. The appearance of the fog world has arguably happened in the past in connection to the spirits of Silent Hill. It was in connection with the Order. At least that's my understanding of Silent Hill's history. But now, the fog has changed. And I don't think for one second that's a retcon or an oversight, but instead, since the burning of Alessa and the events surrounding Harry Mason, the strength of the fog world has grown, and instead, those with enough pain, trauma, or corruption within them can be attuned to travel within the fog world. Experiences, memories, and apparitions populate this fog world as per the individual. So if I was ushered into the fog world, places and people, quote-unquote, would probably be different from the fog world that you experience. Dark punishments of the other world I would experience would certainly be much different than yours, though they can absolutely overlap. Don't cross streams, folks. It gets confusing. So, at this particular time, there are a few people walking the distorted realities of Silent Hill. As James meets them, so too will we talk about them. By the time James arrives at the rest stop just off Silent Hill, he's forgotten or suppressed what happened to Mary, doesn't acknowledge the part of the vehicle that she's in, and only gives credence to the blank paper in his pocket that he thinks is a letter from Mary. At this point, the player would have no reason to question James or his motivations. But knowing what you do, how does seeing James like this make you feel? Do you pity him? Do you have hatred, indifference, sadness, or just disdain for him? Take that and couple it with a side of empathy, if you will. Maybe not empathy explicitly for James, but give somebody your understanding, and as we go, see if your opinion of James Sunderland evolves. At the steps, which will lead him on into Silent Hill, the fog is beginning to settle in. It thickens as he treks away from the rest stop. This path takes him into a graveyard, of all places, but he's not alone. There's a young woman there, Angela Orozco, within the fog. 
Angela wouldn't be here unless there was a reason for it, would she? Angela is looking for her mother. She hasn't seen her in quite a long time, at least as far as her memory serves, but there's some gaps in what she can recall. She doesn't remember that her mother left the family some time ago, or perhaps she passed away and that's why Angela is looking for her in the cemetery. She doesn't remember her father, his abuse and refusal to allow her to leave the house, the incestuous rape that took place within her home, her mother's blame upon Angela herself for it, the multiple stab wounds she left on her father's corpse by her own hand. She just, she just can't quite seem to recall. She's timid. She stumbles over her own words. She's apologetic, skittish, like a small animal, keeps a distance from James, but she does know that Silent Hill, there's, there's something wrong with it. She warns James to stay away from it. It's not safe. And James, quite coldly, just sort of dismisses Angela. He doesn't care that it's dangerous one way or another. He's going to Silent Hill. James has no qualms with leaving Angela there. Her behavior is of no importance to James. He has his own demons to chase. Silent Hill isn't the quaint, sleepy town that James remembers. It's covered in fog, of course, but there's blood smears on the road, random bodies hidden around the area the roads are blocked off, guiding James towards his next point of interest, and there are monstrous creatures roaming the streets. And there are strong sexual themes amongst the creatures of James's fog world and his other world. Truths cannot be withheld in this place, even if he's not aware of the reasonings behind it, these creatures exist because of James Sunderland. For the last few years of Mary's life, her body was slowly failing, her skin was sickly, and she lashed out at James. She called herself ugly. There was no intimacy between them, there was hardly any affection to speak of. Out of loyalty to his wife, James just suppressed his desires, perhaps even kept the truth of his lust to himself. But. Within this warped reality of Silent Hill, those secrets will not be kept. But let's stay on track. James hears Mary's voice coming from a little radio, spurring him on in his journey, on to the Woodside apartment complex. Woodside seems pretty nondescript, a place of little importance to James, but perhaps it's not James who is of consequence here. He could just be a passerby, bringing his own baggage into somebody else's journey. Within the complex, James is faced with a number of events. He finds a mannequin wearing Mary's trademark dress and sweater. Not far away, a new enemy composed of two mannequin figures, female, conjoined from the hips down to each side. And this design is not coincidence, it's not an accident, everything is done intentionally. Next, James meets Laura, though he never interacted with the child when Mary was alive. Somehow, it seems that Laura has managed to escape whosever custody she was in and came to Silent Hill alone, though it's important to note that Laura is not a being worthy of punishment. She doesn't have baggage. What little Laura is experiencing isn't what James or Angela is experiencing, so fear not for the child running around a monster-infested, decrepit apartment complex. She stomps on his hand, kicks a key out of his reach, laughs at him, and leaves him there. But. Well, that's… that's not all James meets en route through the dark building. Down a dark corridor he goes, his radio broadcasting frantic static, down the hallway, to something. Beyond some bars, just calmly standing, waiting patiently, watching, you could say, what is that? Or 
Who is that? Now, I would usually skip item obtains, but this is going someplace, trust me. In a room nearby, this terrifying male figure is a body in a chair. It looks like it's been absolutely brutalized. And a key is attached to this body, which leads to another room in the complex. And in this room are cages of bugs and butterflies flying around the room. There's also a hole in the wall. Now, if you've played the cat lady, you'll understand why I have an aversion to my character shoving their arms in holes. I don't think it's that unusual of a thought. Test for traps, put something else in the hole first. James doesn't really give that any thought though. And I wouldn't think of this as just James not thinking things through, but rather a disregard for his own safety. And we'll hit on that more later. I'm sure you can think of a few that we'll be talking about, but first, Let's talk about him. I had no context coming into this game as to what this thing was. I was struck. I knew his name was Pyramid Head, but he looks like he's wearing a long apron. He kind of reminds me of Valtiel, though he's clearly not the same. I wasn't ready for how this being would turn my stomach, and I immediately disliked him. I was startled by the sexually violent motions happening quite suddenly on screen. This butcher? This executioner? It's a part of James? Is it for him or is it because of him? When James started shooting, I understood why. There was nothing redeeming or fun about what this creature was or what it was doing. Pyramid Head, as I understand, was depicted at the Silent Hill Historical Society in an art piece. Silent Hill during its prison era was a place where many executions took place. During the Civil War era between 1862 and 1865, a prisoner of war camp was built in Silent Hill, which then became the Toluca prison. And the order had a presence here as executioners. They wore red triangular masks, white garb, and served in the order of Altiel. Had James seen this art or read up on the history of Silent Hill with Mary, it could have imprinted on his mind that this creature, this pyramid head as we call him, exists to punish. And that is why he is here. He's here for James, to punish James. For the murder of his wife, his guilt, shame, grief, and denial, they all give it form. But we're not done making friends, are we? How about one more for the road? Eddie Dombrowski, puking violently into a toilet. Very, very insistent that he didn't do anything. He didn't do it. The corpse in the fridge was already there when he arrived. He didn't do it. He didn't kill anybody. But Eddie wouldn't be here if he wasn't running from something, right? Well, Eddie has experienced a lifetime of bullying for his looks, for his weight. He's an easy target and emotionally stunted, not equipped to handle the treatments that he received. In retaliation for this, Eddie killed the dog of one of his bullies. He shot it, and he watched the animal chew on its own guts. He watched it die slowly, and he enjoyed it. When the bully found them, Eddie shot them in the knee, and then he fled. The police are almost certainly looking for him now. Eddie doesn't seem to have forgotten anything, though he doesn't acknowledge it, let alone confess to it. And yes, that is a horrible thing that he's done, but perhaps there's something a bit more dangerous within Eddie, something that he hasn't even yet realized himself. 
Crossing over into Blue Creek Apartments, James once again does something risky as well as just foul. Here, take, take, a, look, take a look at the screen. Now, okay, okay. I know that this is an optional thing to do, and at first I thought James was just gross. But think back to that hole in the wall that he put his arm into. Shoving your arm, hand, and sleeves into a filthy toilet like that, that's a pretty, pretty blatant disregard for your own well-being. He doesn't even wash his hands. You could see that as a goof, I suppose. Oh, look at how gross James is. Or you could view it as another risky behavior that James has given no mind to. Just a few minutes later, James once again encounters Angela, who does not seem to be doing well. The two exchange names, and we get to see a bit of that caring side that Mary knew James to have. Angela holds a knife. The knife. And James kneels beside her and gives her whatever words of comfort that he can conjure up. He's trying. Angela still hasn't found her mother and doesn't seem to be in a clear state of mind, so James tries to draw logic lines with her. But it just doesn't work. Angela can't keep her thumb on the reality of her storyline, or she's so unwilling to face what happened that her brain keeps wiping out information that could bring her harm, all while still holding that bloodied knife. Though she does remember that James is looking for someone. James doesn't hold back in telling Angela about her, even admitting that he knows that she's dead and he doesn't know why he thinks that she's here, but he has to search for her. The mention of Mary being dead spurs Angela up. She needs to go find her mama. James takes steps to offer to help her and validates her previous warnings that the town is dangerous, though Angela wants to be alone. She'd just slow him down anyways, but does give him the knife just to hold on to, which is for the best. She realizes that if she keeps it, she may do something with it. When James takes a step towards her, though, her reaction is quite sad. This young woman, who's no more than 19, though she looks a decade older, is so skittish and afraid that just getting close to her triggers her fight response. And then she apologizes. It's very clear that something is profoundly wrong with Angela. Even before knowing what brought her here, it's very apparent that she's experienced abuse and trauma. To get through this building, out to the street, James has to go through the back exit. Not a problem. Except, who should decide to make a hostile appearance but creepy old Pyramid Head, James's Punisher? There's little wiggle room and the escape is flooded, so if James wants through, he's going to have to fight off this being just to prove that he's got some fight in him, which is fair, and Pyramid Head acts in a fair manner. James acts against his aggressor, and the flooded exit is drained, fair and square. On he goes, back out to the street of Silent Hill, and on to Rosewater Park, the place James believes Mary called their special place. And on his way there, James chances across little Laura again, and the kid just kind of teases at James when he attempts to put her on the spot for stomping on his hand earlier. She's a wily little thing. When James asks what she's doing in a place like this, Laura looks at him like he just grew a second nose on his forehead. Laura is just seeing normal old Silent Hill. It's probably a nice day out for her. But in her possession is an actual letter from Mary, her old friend at the hospital. Mary had written a letter to Laura before she passed away. My dearest Laura, I'm leaving this letter with Rachel to give to you after I'm gone. I'm far away now, in a quiet, beautiful place, 
Please forgive me for not saying goodbye before I left. Be well, Laura. Don't be too hard on the sisters. And Laura, about James. I know you hate him because you think he isn't nice to me, but please give him a chance. It's true he may be a little surly sometimes, and he doesn't laugh much, but underneath he's really a sweet person. Laura, I love you like my very own daughter. If things had worked out differently, I was hoping to adopt you. Happy 8th birthday, Laura. Your friend forever, Mary. Losing Mary must have deeply hurt the child, and she came here looking for Mary too, in a quiet, beautiful place, words that Mary had used before when talking to James about Silent Hill. It makes sense that Laura would think that Mary had come here, not that she had died. Kids don't really tend to read between the lines, do they? Though Mary wrote to her that James was a sweet person deep down, Laura very much dislikes him for the pain his absence brought to Mary when she was ill. Finally, at Rosewater Park, James meets our final new friend, Maria. Now, Maria has been active since James entered Silent Hill, so to speak. Maria is the spitting image of Mary, though she's flirtatious, coy, and her garb is a bit more racy than Mary's. Maria came into consciousness at the Heaven's Night, an adult club in Silent Hill. She woke up in the back as though she were an employee or a dancer. She's not sassy or even confident when she wakes up either, in fact, she doesn't even remember how she got there. As she wanders through Silent Hill, specifically a mansion belonging to Ernest Baldwin, Maria begins to have faint memories that Mary would have had, such as remembering a little girl named Laura and then the name James. Ernest Baldwin warns her that James is a bad man and is looking for the you that isn't you. Upon opening the door to where Ernest resides, Maria finds that she's been talking to no one, an apparition perhaps, who seemed so real, just as she will seem real to James. She understands that she will serve a purpose in the events that will transpire around this James Sunderland. Though she contemplates killing herself, the woman instead decides to see where fate takes her, what part she will play in the story to come. And when James does meet her, She's all devious smiles and flirtatious conversation, quite a departure from the woman who began life just up the road and who not so long ago held a gun to her own head and considered suicide. She is not real. She's a creation of this fog world of James's delusions and desires for Mary, and she will change to suit the needs of James and to test his love and loyalty to Mary. And James is struck by her appearance, immediately recognizing that she could be Mary's twin. It takes him a few tries to realize that, well, no, in fact, she's not Mary, her name is Maria. And when it finally sinks into his skull, he draws away from her and apologizes. He's interested in Mary, not Maria. He even just tries to leave Maria on the boardwalk, and it takes a reminder from Maria to James that Mary is dead. So how could she be here if she was dead? Maria helps James along in his thinking. If Mary isn't here, was this their only special place? What other special place could she have meant? And James remembers a little snippet from the videotape that they'd made when Mary was alive and healthy, when they had visited Silent Hill. Maybe she's at the hotel that they'd stayed at. Maria seems to know the way and insists on accompanying James, using her resemblance of Mary to manipulate her way into it. Maria needs to be with James if she's to fulfill her role in this story. She turns clingy very fast, even uses emotional manipulation, as he's thus far traveled alone through the town and there's a chance that he could reject her. He doesn't really jump at the chance to have her along, but instead just sort of allows it. 
as though these word games really weren't necessary in the first place, she probably could have just asked and left it at that. En route to the hotel, Maria and James stop by the bowling alley, Pete's Bolorama. Though Maria hates bowling, apparently, so she refuses to go in. But inside is Eddie and that little brat. I mean, Laura. The two are kind of chummy with one another. Eddie takes her teasing in stride, and Laura isn't afraid of Eddie. Eddie is chowing down on pizza, living his best life, and dang, I love pizza too and would like me some of that sweet, sweet pizza, my dude. Laura is asking him about what he did, the reason he came to Silent Hill, why the cops are after Eddie. Though he says he doesn't know what the cops are up to, he just ran away because he was scared and casually brushes off the girl's questioning. She relates to him in a way that she runs away from things too. It's not always as easy as saying you're sorry when something is frightening you. When James approaches, Eddie kind of awkwardly acknowledges him. The two don't have the most productive of conversations. And little Laura makes another getaway from James. James is adamant about going after her, not out of anything malicious. But Eddie is very unconcerned for the girl, probably because he doesn't think she's in any sort of danger. If the two have shared in conversation out of our ear reach, he is most likely aware that Laura isn't witnessing any of the Fog World or the other world events that the adult characters are. She said she was fine, he took her word for it. Or he's just magnificently lazy and doesn't care about the kid. James's dismissal for Eddie's lack of concern also doesn't bother him in the least. When James storms out to chase down the girl, he is perfectly content staying in the bowling alley alone with his pizza. Maria also saw Laura leave the alley and tried to run after the girl. Remember, she has memories of Mary, and she vaguely knows who Laura is. She feels a need to protect the girl. She feels responsible for her, in a way. Responsible for her well-being. They need to chase after her. Forget the hotel for now. The two need to follow her trail to the back alley near Heaven's Night, which Maria conveniently has the keys to. Hmm, wonder why she has those. Maybe she was an employee here, or... Maybe she was actually here not too long ago. Cutting through the nightclub gets them back onto the road, where they track Laura down to the Brookhaven Hospital. The halls of Brookhaven are dark and roamed by a new foe, yet one that we've seen many times before in other stories. These nurses, though their skirts are high, and ample cleavage is on display, not really a standard-issue nurse outfit, though they carry the look well, don't they? The disfigured, bandaged face is a dramatization of what happened to Mary when the illness took hold. It's all for and because of James. There are no secrets from this place. It all means something. On the third floor of the hospital, Maria begins to feel ill. She sits down. She needs to stop. She's tired, says it's a hangover, and pops a pill of some sort, but that's clearly a lie, isn't it? For whatever reasons unknown, at least to James, she cannot continue on with him through the hospital, at least not for now. She must fulfill her enigmatic role in some other way. So, James leaves her here for a while to rest, continuing into Brookhaven on his own to search for Laura. On the roof of the hospital, James gets another visit from his punishment buddy, Pyramid Head, who promptly escorts him off the roof of the hospital. He doesn't outright kill James, but it does do some major damage. It lands him into a previously blocked off room from the hospital, the special treatment rooms, padded rooms and messages left in blood. In Silent Hill 3, Heather learned of at least one faculty member who was locked up here because of a refusal to cooperate with hospital policy. 
The rooms are small, padded, soundproof. A code is left by a former patient, which is needed to proceed to find the elevator key, so in a way, I guess, thanks, Pyramid Head? James does eventually find Laura, hiding in one of the patient rooms, playing with a set of teddy bears. And finally, the two have a small conversation of sorts. They talk a little bit about Mary. Laura already has preconceived notions of James. She doesn't like him, so she's not very forthcoming with information and is defensive against him. But she admits that she was a friend of Mary's at the hospital. They'd met over a year ago. And James starts yelling, calling her a liar, because Mary died three years ago, so how could Laura have met her last year? He quickly walks back his outburst, and Laura accompanies him for a small distance, but then, oh, she just happens to realize, well, she, for she forgot something. She, she dropped her letter from Mary. From Mary. They need to go back and get it, which James, of course, absolutely agrees to with very few questions asked. It's, it's just in that room there, that dark room that was locked. Yeah, yep, go in there, James, and uh, grab the letter. It's in the back. It's, in, it's way in the back. You see it? You see it? Now, now remember, Laura isn't seeing this distorted reality that James is walking through. Laura is a part of his journey, but she's not here with baggage. She doesn't realize that she's locking James into a room with fleshy beasts. Not even when he starts to panic and bang on the door. She calls him a fart face and runs away, not sensing that he's on the verge of a breakdown. These groaning, wide-lipped creatures appear suspended from a bed, their feet kicking and thrashing about as, as they attack James. Letting them get too close can cause serious damage. And unlike every time we've seen before in Silent Hill, with the death of this greater creature, the other world descends. Typically, once a great creature or a boss is defeated, it banishes the other world. But here, it's the onset of it. James's reasoning for being here is unique. It's disconnected from the working of the Order. He's not some powerful spiritual being involved in rebirth cycles or rituals. There's no one here acting as its anchor to the other world but himself. The sequence is therefore different. But it's the familiar other world that we've seen before. The blood-stained, rusted-out bastardization of the town. An extremely dark, dangerous, and lonely place. Maria is not in the patient room resting where James left her. She's fled to the basement of the hospital. It takes James quite some time to make his way down there and to chance upon her. She's been through something quite frightening, but James's response when finding her is essentially just... Oh, it's you. Well, you're not Mary. Yeah, no shit, James. And Maria is having none of his his weird mopey behavior. What she's experienced, what what's happened in the hospital, the fall of the other world, isn't something to ho hum over. Which is exactly what James is doing. What does it take to get this guy to have an emotional response to something? It's like nothing sticks to him. All he cares about is finding Mary, which is fair, but there are other things happening around him that he's almost completely tuned out or made himself numb to. One of those things is the harrowing experiences that Maria has also experienced. But Maria also knows just what to say to really lay on guilt. There are two extremes at play here. One can't muster up the empathy to express concern and the other one demands it. This is the role that she is meant to play in the story, break James down. Take his mind away from Mary, test his loyalty to his wife, test his emotional strength. 
and thus far he has been strong, almost on a self-destructive level. Maria really starts turning up the emotional blackmail, blending the lines between rational fear and what James believes that Mary felt in her final days. Maria still expresses concern for the girl, though, for Laura. She knows that she herself never met the girl before, but she feels sorry for her and she feels the need to protect her. The two travel together for a time until they reach the basement and, once again, Pyramid Head appears. It seems there needs to be a change in the party composition. He chases them a short distance, but he cuts down Maria. James saw himself into an elevator, but Maria was just a touch too slow. For now, she's done what she needed to do. But you know, of course, she'll be back later. Maria can't just die. She'll have more work to do soon enough, but James doesn't know that. He's not meant to know that. He sits for a few minutes, but then, once he reaches his floor, he just gets up and he carries on. It's mighty dark outside now, no fog, it's just pitch black. After some stumbling around from lead to lead, James makes it to the Silent Hill Historical Society. There, he begins his long descent deeper into the other world. The space and distance he walks, it makes no sense, but that's to be expected now, isn't it? In another disregard for his own safety, James plunges down a well-like hole. On, deeper he goes into the abyss, through flooded passages and grotesque monsters, down yet another cavern, through jail-like bars, giving no thought to his own safety. This dark descent leads him out into the old Toluca prison, a place where executions were once common and the Order played their games. But Eddie? Eddie is here. Eddie is here with a gun and a bit of a wild look in his eyes. The same Eddie who vomited uncontrollably at the sight of a dead body now sits just a few feet from one and states that killing isn't really a big deal. Even with gun in hand, Eddie denies that the death of the man nearby is his fault when James asks. It's not his fault because he made him do it. He made Eddie kill him because he was making fun of him with his eyes, so it's his fault. Eddie has clearly experienced something or remembered something that has brought his true nature to the surface or broken his mind wide open. It's hard to tell with Eddie, but he's clearly a bit mad. He's justifying his past actions, the killing of that dog, the shooting of his bully, the death of this nameless person, by saying that they deserved it. Therefore, he's done nothing wrong. With gun in hand, he has no fear in leaving James there alone to venture on into the other world. Within Toluca Prison, there's a large courtyard where the killings took place. Occult symbols on prison cell walls, strange artwork hung in the cafeteria. The halo of the sun is faintly drawn onto another wall, manuscripts of old religions, paintings of strange events and beings in another. The floors are damp and puddled. The morgue is stuffed with bodies. This wasn't just a prison during its time. Great suffering took place here. And James continues to throw himself deeper into the other world, dropping down yet another dark abyss. Then another immediately after. Then onto an elevator descending deeper still out into a labyrinth that looks like the halls of an office building, but... I suppose like Harry Mason 
when he was trying to find his daughter Cheryl, none of this matters. The danger of it isn't enough to stop James, though Harry acted out of love for his child. James rather seems to do it out of desperation and insanity. On and on it goes, through nonsensical passageways and puzzles, shifting rooms and holes in the floor, until finally James finds Maria, smiling, pleasant, peaceful, on the other side of a wall of bars, just waiting for James to arrive. And she's just fine, not a scratch on her. She doesn't know what James is talking about, that thing that stabbed her. Perhaps James has her confused with somebody else. The line between Maria and Mary is blurred even further. She speaks as though she is Mary, speaks of their time at the hotel, the tape that he'd forgotten there. Maybe it's still there, at the hotel, in their room. But still, James questions her and who she is. Isn't she Maria? Well, I am if you want me to be. She does not claim to be Mary, however, though she will be whoever James wants her to be. She'll be there for him. In fact, she's very eager to be with James if it weren't for these damned bars in the way. And for the first time, James is starting to crack. Once, Mary was all he wanted, all he wanted to find, but this being Maria invites him to find her, tells him that she'll be whoever he wants her to be, and he begins to search for a way to reach her. The path to her is broken apart, leading off of his map into dark places not charted. He finds pieces of Angela's past, the secrets that she's suppressed, the murder of her father, and not far away, James can hear her cries, begging her father to stop. And going to her, James is met by another foul creation of the other world. A double-bodied figure, seemingly in a sexual position, writhing atop a bed frame. Though remember, what James sees is not what Angela sees and vice versa. We cannot know explicitly what Angela is seeing, what represents her father. The same can be said of the room, flesh walls with phallic pulsating mechanisms constantly thrumming on. Is this what Angela sees, bleeding over into James's other world, or could she be seeing something far worse? That's not really a question that I want an explicit answer to, though, as I suspect that what we're getting is just a glimpse into what Angela sees. And bringing down this creature doesn't bring Angela any closer to trusting James, which is perfectly fair. She's full of pent-up rage. She survived years of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of the men in her immediate family. Rather insensitive of James to tell her to calm down, isn't it? Because that's how you get any person to calm down, right? You tell them to calm down. Angela is far less afraid of James now, openly talking back to him and being highly suspicious of his actions and his motivations. Even if James wasn't the one who hurt her, he's the target of her sadness and anger. Angela asks about his wife. He said she was dead, that she was ill as she passed away. But Angela somehow knows that he's lying and accuses him of being a scumbag who just didn't want her around anymore. When she leaves James there, he really doesn't put up much of an argument, doesn't stand up for himself, just mutters to himself that it's ridiculous. He's not yet faced the truth. He's still delusional, and he's still lying to himself. James does eventually find Maria. He finds a way to the other side of the Bardoff room. 
but she's been beaten to death. And her face, it looks like Mary's when she was ill and her skin was changing. James does take a moment to sit beside her to try and process what's happened. He says his wife's name, and then he just moves on. Down the corridor is something of interest, an indoor underground graveyard. On the gravestones, he finds Miriam K., traitor, Walter Sullivan, an epitaph for a felon, Angela Orozco, Eddie Dombrowski, and James Sunderland, whose grave lies open into a dark abyss. Down another hole, James hurls himself. And this time, he finds Eddie in a frigid place of his own making, surrounded by three bodies. Eddie is all too eager to regurgitate the language his bullies used against him, using it as an excuse for why it's okay to kill them. It doesn't matter if you're smart, dumb, ugly, pretty. When you're dead, it's all the same, isn't it? And he has the gun, he has the weapon, so if anyone makes fun of him, he'll just kill them. And James thinks to himself, hmm, I think that now is a good time to ask Eddie if he's gone nuts. The unhinged man with a gun, who just said that he'd shoot anyone who made fun of him. Hmm. Another instance of James not really taking his personal safety into account. Though, James also has weapons, so what ensues is a gunfight between two men who, in different ways, are wildly deranged. During the halftime show, Eddie expresses his reasonings, justifying why he killed a dog and shot a peer. James takes the bait, expresses disapproval, tells him he needs help, though Eddie calls James on his hypocrisy. If James was called to this place too, then James is no better than Eddie, and that's pretty sound logic. And now three people have put to word that James has his own sins to face, yet still he hasn't done so. James kills Eddie and laments that he's killed another human being. Acknowledging this, that he's killed someone, finally brings James to start questioning his memory of Mary. Did she actually die three years ago? Leaving this meat locker takes James back to the surface, out of the other world, to the fog world of Silent Hill. The hotel that he has been seeking is just across the lake, so he cuts across on a rowboat. There have been stories in the past of boats that ferry around visitors to Silent Hill, vanishing into the fog on the lake, never to be found again, but James makes it across in one piece, through the fog, on to the Lakeview Hotel, where a little rascal is roaming about unsupervised, Laura. Seems there's no bad blood between the two after the hospital incident. Laura knows that they're both here specifically in this hotel, searching for Mary. And if James knows where she is, she really wants him to tell her, but he doesn't. He's still looking for her too. Laura lets him read her letter, the one that Mary wrote before she died. Remember, at the end of that letter, Mary wished her a happy eighth birthday. So, James asks the girl how old she is, and she says she turned eight last week. He's finally starting to take the facade apart. Laura runs off once again to search for a picture of Mary's that she dropped, so James is able to make his way through the ghoulish hotel on his own, up to the room that he and Mary shared some three years ago on their visit to Silent Hill. He finally sits down, and he watches the tape. 
Are you taping again? Come on. <sighs> I don't know why, but I just love it here. It's so peaceful. You know what I heard? This whole area used to be a sacred place. I think I can see why. It's too bad we have to leave. Please promise you'll take me again, James. <laughs> you caught it, right? When James went for the pillow. That was a moment that I really wasn't expecting. And like Pyramid Head's introduction earlier in the game, that little clip, it just churns my stomach. It's a testament to how important blind playthroughs are to this channel. It was akin to a jump scare and just sort of left me dumbfounded. How did I not see that coming? And I kept saying as I had played the game, James did something. What did James do? James can't be a good guy if he's here. I don't trust James. But I wasn't really expecting the sadness of the puzzle to come together into a mercy killing and dissociation from reality. It wasn't just murder, it was so much sadder than that. And there's there's reason on top of reason on top of reason for it to have cascaded into that event, but there's no excuse for it. He killed his sick, dying, terrified wife. And the smudged facts and the false memories, it was James trying to protect himself from the truth of what he'd done, and now it's time for that to end. Laura finds him there. She asks him if he's found Mary yet. And James finally tells the girl that he hasn't found her because Mary is dead. And this is the first time that someone has told the child in complete clarity that Mary has died. And James finally says aloud that she's not dead because she got sick, but because he killed her. Is the child wrong to hate him? I don't think so, not in the least. Laura knows better than anyone how James saddened Mary. How she was always waiting for him, and now he confesses to killing her too. And to think Mary dreamed of adopting Laura. In another life, James could have been her father. But now the only thing binding these two together is that memory of Mary and the knowledge of what James did to her. It's time for the girl to leave to let James face the end on his own. Pushing on, the walls of the hotel start to appear burnt out. Water drips from the ceiling and the lower levels are partially flooded. And then James finds Angela, walking within her own other world, the walls on fire, cruel human art on the walls. She calls James her mama, excited to have finally found her after all this time. With her brother and her father dead, mama is the only one left. It's only when she gets close to James, touches his face, that she realizes that it's not mama, it's James. She takes the chance to thank him for helping her earlier, but expresses her desire to no longer live. She blames herself for what her father and brother did to her. She thinks she's not worth pity. She becomes quite snide towards James, taunting him as though expressing affection towards somebody like her would be a cruel joke on himself. Saving her, it's a joke. Healing her, it's sarcasm. And all that James can do is just avert his eyes, 
He doesn't know what's right, just like with Mary's outbursts. James doesn't know what to say, how to make things better. Angela demands that he give her back the knife that she asked him to hold on to. His refusal to do so doesn't stop her, however. Angela ascends the burning staircase, leaving James behind. The hotel appears completely burnt out now, as though it could fall apart any moment. And one last time, James finds Maria, bound to a rack, with two beings called Pyramid Head at her sides. And one last time, James must watch as this woman is violently murdered. He knows what he's done to deserve to be here. He knows what this punishing figure is. He knows why he needed Pyramid Head. He was weak, and he needed to be punished for his sins, as he wouldn't do it himself. But the time for that has ended. This final encounter with this being doesn't end with James heroically slaying the beasts. Rather, he fights on and on and faces them down. And once James has proven that he doesn't need to be punished anymore, that they can't hurt him anymore, the dual creatures kill themselves. It's as simple as that. And now, James may proceed. Now, there, there are a number of possible endings for this game, and as I understand it, none of them have ever been definitively labeled as the canon ending, so I'll share my experience, the ending that James met during my gameplay. And please, if you recall, share what ending you achieved, what you thought about it, and how it made you feel, because I would really love to know. Atop the hotel, James finds Mary, or something appearing as Mary, though whatever it is, it at least doesn't claim to be Mary. Mary is dead. James killed her. He can call her Maria instead. That would be accurate if it makes him more comfortable. Then it's fine. But Maria herself isn't really Maria herself. She was a creation brought to form from James Sunderland, inspired by a dead woman. Here at the end, James rejects this being, though she says she can be his forever. She'll never treat him poorly like Mary did, but... James' love for Mary, it goes beyond what happened when she was sick. The last months of her life didn't erase what they had before. The thing, this, the thing isn't Mary. Mary is gone. And James wants nothing to do with it. James's final fight is with this vilified Mary, a cruel, violent caricature of his wife, strapped to a bed, beautiful and grotesque. After enough pain is inflicted on her, she drops to the floor, still bound to her sickbed, and calls for James and gasps for air. But he can't leave her. He has to continue this fight and end her. Though it's only taking place in his own mind, James does finally get that chance to sit beside his dying wife's bed and to give her the goodbye that he had locked up. He gets to find closure, even if it's not real. At this point, does it even matter? Mary tells him that his suffering is enough. And I don't usually do this, but this is one of the most beautifully crafted endings that I've ever seen in a game. So I'm going to break tradition and I'm just going to let it play out. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. James! Uh, uh, uh.
Now I understand the real reason I came to this town. I wonder, what was I afraid of? Without you, Mary, I've got nothing. Now we can be together. In my restless dreams, I see that town, Silent Hill. You promised you'd take me there again someday, but you never did. Well, I'm alone there now, in our special place, waiting for you, waiting for you to come to see me, but you never do. And so I wait, wrapped in my cocoon of pain and loneliness. I know I've done a terrible thing to you. Something you'll never forgive me for. I wish I could change that, but I can't. I feel so pathetic and ugly laying here, waiting for you. Every day I stare up at the cracks in the ceiling. And all I can think about is how unfair it all is. The doctor came today. He told me I could go home for a short stay. It's not that I'm getting better. It's just that this may be my last chance. I think you know what I mean. Even so, I'm glad to be coming home. I've missed you terribly. I'm afraid, James. I'm afraid you don't really want me to come home. Whenever you come see me, I can tell how hard it is on you. I don't know if you hate me or pity me. Or maybe I just disgust you. I'm sorry about that. When I first learned that I was going to die... I just didn't want to accept it. I was so angry all the time, and I struck out at everyone I loved most, especially you, James. That's why I understand if you do hate me, but I want you to know this, James. I'll always love you. Even though our life together had to end like this, I still wouldn't trade it for the world. We had some wonderful years together. <laughs> well, this letter's gone on too long, so I'll say goodbye. I told the nurse to give this to you after I'm gone. That means that as you read this, I'm already dead. I can't tell you to remember me, but I can't bear for you to forget me. These last few years since I became ill, I am so sorry for what I did to you, did to us. You've given me so much, 
and I haven't been able to return a single thing. That's why I want you to live for yourself now. Do what's best for you, James. James. You made me happy.